Well, this morning we are going to come to chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. This is halfway through the exploration into the powerful works of Jesus Christ. And Matthew, who is a meticulous storyteller, he really organizes much of this material thematically. If you are tasked with the uh, the opportunity and the, the chore of, of writing down an entire person's life, a biography, but you only had a small amount of time to do it or a small amount of uh, space to do it, what would you include in terms of events of a person's life? And so that was the, the task of the gospel writers is to try to figure out how to display the glory of Christ and be accurate and be faithful to the story, to be faithful to his words How do you do that in such a succinct manner? And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have different approaches to how they write their gospel. Now, it's not that Matthew doesn't care about the timeline of events, because he certainly does, but he knows, again, he only has so much space to showcase showcase the life and the gospel of Jesus to his audience. And so we see in many instances in Matthew's gospel that he really groups certain events together for the purpose of the narrative, and it illustrates the main point. So again, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, they function together as a unit, and they're they're laid out to display uh, the power of Christ through his miracles and through his healings. Chapter 8 alone, we see the expanding influence of Jesus' ministry as he ups the the stakes higher and higher every single time. We see that Jesus first uh, heals people of their illnesses, demonstrating his power over personal circumstances. And so he goes person to person in those first few instances. And then we see him calming the raging storm, which showcases his power over the creation, over nature. And then we see him cast out a multitude of demons to show his power over the supernatural realm of darkness. So again, he's expanding and increasing his uh, showing of his power and his might. And then we get to chapter 9, and we see his power go even further, doing what everyone standing around thought was impossible, which leads me to really a timeless question. Why did Jesus come to earth? A lot of people ask this question. A lot of people have this question in their minds. Why did, why did Jesus come? Did he just come to earth so we could celebrate a holiday in December? Like, what's the point of Jesus coming to earth? It seems like there's a lot of answers to that today. For the most part, I think theological liberalism, and I want to be very clear that this is theological liberalism, has really ransacked culture's understanding of who Jesus is. Fifty years ago, really, you would have heard in popular culture lots of pundits would quote verses like Matthew seven twelve to treat others the way that you want to be treated. So there was a general sort of this cultural ethic that if you wanted to do what Jesus did, you would just treat people nicely. Undergirding this belief was that Jesus came to earth to teach people how to treat each other. Most recently, even in the last election cycle, we heard many politicians quoting Matthew 25, 35. And here's the verse. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, uh, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they cite verses like these to push their social agenda, believing that Jesus is some kind of a political revolutionary. Of course, now, Jesus wants his followers to be kind. He wants us to show benevolence, for sure. But to consign the Lord Jesus to nothing more than a first-century Palestinian Gandhi is, frankly, idolatry. It's not really who Jesus is. He's more than all the things that we would say he is. So who is Jesus, and what did he come to do? That's the question we're going to talk about Today And so if you haven't already turned there, go to Matthew chapter 9, 
Matthew 9. This really is the account of Jesus healing the paralytic, which appears in all three synoptic gospels. Again, synoptic means really the same or similar view. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. You read those, all three of those gospels together, you see lots and lots of similarities. John is kind of an outlier. He, he takes his own initiatives and tells different accounts of the stories in a different form. But really, this is timeless and all for many different reasons, but there are many reasons for this account being in all three Gospels. The biggest one here, the reason that Matthew tells it the way he does is because he wants to organize, again, the the material thematically. So Mark and Luke tell this event at a different time than Matthew does. Nonetheless, he records that This event takes place after Jesus and the disciples return from their brief trip across the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gadarenes to heal two demon-possessed men. And then Matthew 9 picks up when they leave the region immediately. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So again, right from leaving the Gadarenes, he says, Getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up, and he went home. And the, but the crowd saw this. They were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So again, verse 1 picks up right where we left off last time. Jesus and the disciples, they're leaving the Gentile city or the town of Gadara, and they're getting into the boat at this point. Uh, they cross this uh, sea uh, depending on where on the sea they are, it's a couple hours, maybe three-hour trip, across the Sea of Galilee to, the Bible says, his own town. Now, his own town at this point is not Nazareth, where he's born, but rather, or I should say not born, but where he's from, uh, but this is actually Capernaum, now his new base of operations. So we don't know how much time exactly has passed in between verse 1 and verse 2, but Matthew launches right back into the teaching and healing ministry. Mark does tell us, however, that the event was several days after, so they've gotten home and it's been a little bit of time. But he returns here. We don't exactly know what the timeline is specifically, but Jesus is teaching certainly in somewhere in, in, Jesus, uh, in someone's home. The question is, well, whose house is he at? It could be Peter's, it could be somebody else's, we don't know, but he's in someone's house and he's teaching. Mark records and adds that many people were gathered to hear him, so many in fact, that they were barely able to find room to stand. They were even near the door, they were crowding around the door. Talk about a fire hazard, huh Joe? Verse 2 says, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And the question is, well who's they? Who's the they that brings this person on a mat. Well, Mark tells us that four men, likely four friends, were carrying their friend on a mat. Well, how do you know that they're friends? Well, to do what they're about to do, you'd have to be friends with this person to do it, and that's what they do. Mark tells us what happens next. Matthew alludes, or, uh, excludes this. Mark says this in Mark 2.4, being unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet 
on which the paralytic was lying. This is no small feat. I've tried to time how long this might have taken. Frankly, I don't know, but I've done some thinking about this. And just to kind of give you an idea of what this means, first century homes in Palestine were generally a one-story house, okay, one story, with a flat roof that functioned as a patio. So there was a, a staircase that went externally, and you could go up the stairs, and you could kind of have a little, you could either have a gathering on the roof, or you could, you know, do your Bible study, or whatever you're going to do on the top of the roof, and so they're flat. The roof itself consisted of interlocking wooden beams that were overlaid with straw and with twigs and with mud. So they would pack it in. They would kind of make this hard pack roof. So to get into the room where Jesus is at, they have to climb up there on the stairwell, sort of position themselves over where they think he's going to be, and then they have to dig down through the roof. I don't know if they brought shovels or not, but they're pulling the roof apart They're digging through uh, the mud. They're pulling apart sticks. They're possibly moving beams. This would have been uh, quite a feat. Now, all Matthew says is they brought him a paralytic on a mat. Matthew kind of excludes all this information, but this would have caused a commotion. Uh, This might have taken them 20 minutes, a half hour. I don't know. I don't know how long it takes to dig through someone else's roof with all the debris falling on the people below them to get to where Jesus is. But whatever the commotion that it caused, whatever the distress to the homeowner, Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered one bit. He's not looking at the fiasco. He's looking at their faith. He sees something very different. Look at verse 2. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, some Bible scholars minimize the phrase, seeing their faith. And I read a lot lot about this this week, where they talk about things like, well, you know, Jesus really is witnessing the evidence of their belief and the evidence of their faith, and so really seeing their faith just means that he's watching them dig through the roof and lower this person down, and sort of this extreme act of loving their friend by bringing him through the roof. And I texted one of my friends this week, and I said, I would dig through a roof for you, my friend. And he, oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Sort of kind of camaraderie that, oh, it's just a good act, and so therefore Jesus saw this, and that was good. And I tend to agree, however, with scholars that see that this is actually more than that, that this is an attribute or an affirmation of one of his attributes, namely his omniscience. See, throughout all the Gospels, we see statements about the mind and understanding of Jesus Christ. For example, in John 2.24, we read that despite the multitudes coming to him for miracles, Jesus, he says, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. Verse 25, because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So no one had to come to him and say, well, let me tell you something about myself. He says, I know exactly who you are. And this gets uh, illustrated even further, how he can read thoughts and examine hearts. It's the same ability that he has when he first encounters Nathaniel in John 147 without ever having met him before. He's never seen this man before from what we can tell. And he sees him coming from far off and he declares, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And this shocks Nathaniel and shocks everybody else around him because he could see into his mind, he could see into his heart. And he tells him, I, I even saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And this is the thing that, that shocks Nathaniel and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You know, he's so amazed at this. And, and the question is, you know, he says, well, is it because you saw me under the fig tree? Is that why, is that why you're saying this? Because I saw you? And, but it's more than that. It's not that he just sees him. He, it's, he knows him. There's, there's omniscience there. 
And as we're going to see shortly, it's the same reason that he knows the thoughts of the scribes who are standing in front of him and watching him. Jesus knows thought. He can even see faith. Now, for the sake of argument, let's ask the question again. Why doesn't seeing their faith just mean that he is merely observing the outward action? Well, the answer is because of how he responds. How does he respond to seeing such a thing? See, these men could have believed in Jesus as merely a healer. Now again, if they were just the regular crowds coming to him for healing, they're not coming to him because he's the Messiah. They're coming because they have some felt need. My, my eyes don't work. My arm is lame. I'm sick. I'm, I have a fever or something. They're coming to him because they want something from him. So these men bringing their other friend could have brought them or this man to Jesus simply for the purpose of healing, which is sort of a, a, selfish, a selfish thing for their friend. It's noble, but it's not salvific. It, it's good faith, but it's not saving faith to come to Jesus only for what you want. See, saving faith recognizes that you're lost. Saving faith acknowledges your own sinfulness where you don't try to coddle your sin, you don't try to hide behind your sin, you don't try to make excuses for your sin, you say, no, I'm lost, I'm dead, I'm sinful, and I can't save myself on my own, I need Jesus. Saving faith looks to Christ for life and for forgiveness. The Jews believed that sin and sickness were connected, so they believed that if you were really sick, it's because of some some kind of sin you had. If you were afflicted, you had done something wrong, essentially. Now, we don't know if this man was sick or injured or lame because of his own sins or not. We have no idea. However, his sins certainly would have been on his mind. Well, how do we know? Because of what Jesus says. After supernaturally seeing their faith, which includes the faith of the paralytic, he pronounces his sins forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. But I want you to look at how he addresses the man. He doesn't address him with a rebuke. He doesn't address him with a challenge. He says this, Take courage, son. Other translations render this, Take heart, son. The word here for son is uh, technon. It could be translated child. It's a term of affection. Essentially, the sentiment is this, It's going to be okay, son. That's what he says to him. He's coming down through the roof. It's going to be all right. And as he comes down, he says, Your sins are forgiven. Total stranger. A man in desperate need, he already sees his heart. He already knows what's on his mind. He knows his faith. He forgives his sin. He even calls him son. Child. This is amazing, friends. This is really amazing. That Jesus would forgive him. The Greek word is ephemai. It means literally to send away or to drive away. It's the removal of guilt when it comes to talking about sin. It's the removal of guilt, the removal of, of punishment of sin. It's the removal that drives it far away. We see the imagery in the Old Testament of the scapegoat confessing the sins, laying your hands on the, on the head of the goat, transferring the guilt sort of symbolically, and then sending the goat out into the wilderness never to come back again. That's the idea. We're driving. He's driving our sins far away. How far away? Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is east from west? Well, you can't get to west by going east, can you? So in other words, they're inextricably disconnected and they're as far away as they'll ever be. That's how far God has removed 
the guilt and the stain of our sins from us. And one day in Christ, in glory, we'll have the presence of all sin removed permanently. So this man could not yet walk, but you can be sure that his heart was dancing right now in this moment. Of course, not everybody's happy to hear this. The man's happy on some level. He still can't walk yet, but he's happy that his sins have been forgiven. But someone else in the room is bothered by this. Look at verse 3. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. This fellow blasphemes. The second time in this section we encounter the scribes, whereas back in chapter 8, there was a scribe that comes to Jesus and looking to follow him, uh, to to learn from him. Now Jesus kind of approaches him and and tells him essentially to count the cost. Look, you're not going to find what you're looking for by following me, what you're thinking. But here, they're not looking to follow Jesus. They're looking to oppose him. Scribes, if you remember, they were the religious teachers in Israel. They're the theologians. They're the law keepers. They're the law experts. However, as soon as they hear about Jesus pronouncing forgiveness for sins, all kinds of alarm bells are going off in their minds. Wait a second here. Matthew records their inner monologue. This fellow is blaspheming. You can't say that. Mark even elaborates. The scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Here is the key. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what they're thinking in their minds. He's blaspheming. He can't do this. And they're correct, actually. Isaiah 43.25, the Lord declares, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So God himself declares that he's the one who wipes away transgression. Further, David understands this in Psalm 51, that the ultimate offended party is God. To all sinfulness, the ultimate party, even if you sin against somebody else, the first person to be offended by your sin against somebody else is not them. It's actually the Father. It's God. And David says, Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It wasn't that David didn't recognize he had sinned against other people, but he had this profound sense that my guilt, what what keeps me apart from you when I sin against others, you're the offended party. David had a very good doctrine of sin. He understood it. So even though our sins, again, can be between people, the only true judge of sinfulness is God because He is the one whose holiness is attacked. Therefore, only God can truly forgive sins. Again, we can restore fellowship one-to-one. Yes, I, I forgive you for doing the wrong thing. It's okay, and we can move on with our life. But I'll tell you, if you don't get right with God, the sin, the sin still remains in heaven. Isaiah 44.22, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. He says, this is the Lord, return to me for I have redeemed you. He connects wiping away of transgressions with redemption. The two go together. Can Who can truly forgive sins? The Bible teaches only God alone. Only God alone can truly forgive sins. That's what the, what the Pharisees and scribes are saying here. And again, biblically, correct. They're accurate. But once again, Jesus is exercising his own omniscience. He hears their thoughts. So you've got to see the drama of this, right? They think the thought in their head, and he responds to them verbally. Would that freak you out? 
That would really mess with me. So they're thinking these thoughts, and he responds to verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And they would have looked at each other like, I wasn't thinking evil in my heart. (laughs) And all the crowd would have just turned and looked at them. Jesus knows. He sees right inside of them. He knows what they're thinking. This must have rattled them. How does he know what we're thinking? And here's the other thing. Why is he telling us that what we're thinking is evil? What's wrong with what I'm thinking? Because Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. They know that. Therefore, they're claiming, this is their their mind, to to claim divine prerogatives for himself as a man is blasphemy. You see that? If Jesus is only a man and he's claiming to do only what God can do, that's blasphemy. Unless, of course, he really can do it. That's the question. But Jesus knows who he is. He knows who he is, and he knows he's not blaspheming. Yet they're thinking evil in in their hearts against him. And it's not going to be the last time, by the way. In chapter 9, verse 34, they they accuse him of casting out demons by the ruler of demons, which is a weird thing to accuse somebody of. It's like accusing soldiers of fighting against their own team. You're, You're casting out demons by the power of demons. They accuse him that later. They do they repeat the same accusation in chapter 12, verse 24. And just like Jesus knows the faith inside the heart of the paralytic, he also knows the evil inside the heart of the scribes. And so he puts them to a test. He gives them a a riddle, really. It's really a riddle. Look at verse 5. He says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Because again, he hasn't done anything yet in terms of what they can see. Now, this is a doozy. Let me show you why this is a doozy. Because on the one hand, it would be easier to say, get up and walk, because there is a remote possibility that Jesus could heal this man. Again, Old Testament, there's you know, events of people being healed. So it's, it's possible, technically speaking, that he could say, get up and walk, and he could find a way to prove that true. But to forgive sins, that's humanly impossible. We don't have a, a, a realm of thought for that in, in humanity. That's not possible. So on that level, theologically speaking, it would be easier to say, well, yeah, get up and walk. Okay, that's, again, theologically. That's one, one has slight possibility, the other one is totally poss- only possible if you're God. The second, and the, on the other side of this debate, though, to say, to say that your sins are forgiven is easier because it's impossible to prove. I could say whatever I wanted. Right? I could say anything spiritually. And, and that's why, not to get into the weeds here, but that's why when someone says, I have, a, I have a word from God for you, if it's not like contradictory, if it's not some crazy out there thing, the Lord desires to bless you today. I, thank you. That's all I can say is thank you because I, there's no way to prove that. It's sort of, a, sort of a floating statement in the air. There's no way to prove or disprove. So, is that really from God, or is it just the, the kind intention of another person's uh, sentiment? I, I don't know the answer. This is kind of a, a similar thing. Your sins have been forgiven. How do I know if that's true? So it's easier to say that, but to say to a person, get up and walk, that's actually harder. Because here's the thing, the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? If you say, get up and walk, and nothing happens, oh, you're in trouble now, right? At some point, you've got to back up what you're saying. 
And so on a practical level, on a practical level, to say your sins are forgiven is easier. But here's the thing, friends. In truth, both are impossible. That's the hitch. Both are impossible. Now, in the eternal realm, in the eternal realm, physical healing is far more inferior than spiritual healing. The temporal doesn't, doesn't really matter as much when you're considering eternal things. To put it another way, I can be paralyzed but still go to heaven if I'm spiritually healed. Yet if I'm physically well but not spiritually healed, I cannot go to heaven. Okay, they're not the exact same thing. But in the eyes of the scribes, both would have seemed to be impossible. And while they're sitting there trying to figure it out, trying to give a good, a good reason answer, Jesus utters this. Look at verse 6. But I say, so, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 7, I love the understated nature of verse 7. And he got up and went home. Just like that. So Jesus says, get up and walk, go home. And the man just does it. The place would have erupted. To just see the spectacle of this. To see the the awe-inspiring nature of what's just been done. Who could have seen this coming? Notice also that he never actually answers the riddle. He doesn't tell them the answer. He just acts on it and blows their minds. He accomplishes both here. And we're going to see why in a second. But verse 6, he gives the reason for the sign. Why does Jesus perform all these miracles? Because that's another question that kind of hangs in the air all the time when you read the Gospels. Why does Jesus do what he does? Why do we need the miracles? Why do we need the signs and the wonders? Because the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the powers, all of this is authenticating the person and the ministry of Jesus. And as he gives that authority to his apostles, to the disciples in the first century, that authenticates their ministry and their message as well. So there's a sign. There's always a sign for the sign. There's a reason for it. It points to something. He says this, The miracle was so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He connects the two. If I say his sins are forgiven, and then he shows this powerful sign that authenticates that he's able to do this, then you now know that what he says about the sin is also true. It's wielding divine power. Son of man. He uses the title son of man here. That's a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. Really, I've taught on this before more extensively, but really, it's a divine title for God walking around as a man. That's really what this means. And that's Jesus. If you boil it all down theologically, who is Jesus? He's God walking around as a man. It's what's called the incarnation. He's God incarnate. He's God wrapped in human flesh. We believe that Jesus is two natures in one. He's not partly God and partly man. They don't bleed into each other. No, he has two distinct natures in one person. Now you might say, well, that's hard to understand. Absolutely it is. It's a mystery of what's called the hypostatic union. It's the mystery of the the incarnation of Christ. It's the mystery of how God can be also, at the same time, God and man. But that's Jesus. And he accomplishes a lot in this moment. I don't want you to miss this. He accomplishes a lot. On one level, he's displaying 
uh, the power. He's wielding divine power to heal people. So that by itself is remarkable. I mean, they haven't seen that in Israel for several hundred years. So that by itself elevates his status in the eyes of the Jews across the board because he's able to heal miraculously. And in truth, his miraculous power is better than that of even Moses and Elijah. Because, I mean, they have to entreat God through this big, huge spectacle. And even, uh, I believe it was Elisha who asked when he heals uh, Naaman, he has to do it seven times. He has to perform this ritual seven times. Jesus does it instantly with one word. So he, he kind of heightens the level of power in his miracles. But that's just, that's just one, that's the base level. Next, the power even goes further. It points to the greater reality that he also possesses the authority to forgive sins. The power authenticates what he's already said just a second ago. I tell you, your sins are forgiven. And then he connects the two. He raises them up physically, and he restores them even spiritually. So that itself, that's even greater that he has the power, the authority to forgive sins. But that leads us to the ultimate reality. If he wields the power of heaven and forgives sins in a way that only God can do, this is something else. Follow the logic with me. If only God can forgive sins. And the healing demonstrates that Jesus can forgive sins. Then Jesus is God. And that's what they see. And that's why they were so awestruck and couldn't speak and didn't know what to do. And that, this is the kind of thing that they keep on, they weave together this case over the course of three years to try to nail him about. Is he, he says, you're, you're claiming to be, you're blaspheming. In the end, when they actually murder Jesus on the cross, it's not for any wrongdoing. The only thing they get him on, apart from fabricating this thing about insurrection against Rome, which no one believes, even the Romans don't believe that, but the one thing they get him on is blasphemy. You claim to be God. How dare you? And then God says, I am who I am. They don't know what to do with that. But this is irrefutable. This is irrefutable. If only God can forgive sins and Jesus can demonstrate that that this man's sins are forgiven, then Jesus is God. But it also points to the ultimate reason why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come to earth? What was the point? Was it to be a good example for us all of self-sacrifice? Was it to demonstrate morality? Was it to to be some sort of a, a revolutionary? Back in Matthew 1.21, the angel tells Joseph, his adoptive father, that his wife would bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Even before Jesus was born, the angel already told them, told the parents, here's what your son is going to do. He's going to save his people from their sins. Now, the way that Jesus saves people is by giving his life on the cross. We see this image behind me here of, of a cross. What's the point? Is that just some symbol that goes on the back of a bumper sticker on your car and just talks about how spiritual you are? Is that that it? I'll never forget, I I saw a kid one time wearing this cross around his neck. I think I really freaked him out. I said, do you know what's around your neck? He says, well, kind of. And I said, do you know what it is? I said, "It's, it's an ancient torture device. And he went, put it inside of his shirt. I should have explained further. I tried to, but he ran away. I kind of regret that one. I wish I'd done that better. You know, I was trying the, the, the R.C. Sproul shock factor. I just didn't have it. Just didn't have it. But that's, I mean, this, the cross is a torture device. It's where you murder people. So it's not just for well-wishing religious things. This is an instrument of death. 
And the reason the cross is so significant is because this is where the God-man, the perfect Son of God, goes and gives His life as a ransom, He says, for many. A ransom to who? To God, the only true offended party. And by His acceptable payment for sin, forgiveness is earned. You don't have to go and flog yourself. You don't have to go and do enough good deeds to offset the scales. It doesn't work like that. Because even if you thought that's how it worked, you couldn't do it. And you, and you might run around and try, well, if I just do enough good things, I can, I can undo this. How does that work out? Let me even just ask you practically. If you commit adultery, how many bouquets of flowers can you buy your wife before she forgets and forgives you on that? Truly. Now, again, you might find reconciliation. You might be able to rebuild trust. But in terms of the transgression itself, how much can you give to undo that? Or even, let's go a step further, murder. When you take someone else's life, how much money can you give? How many good deeds can you do? How many people's dogs can you walk up? You cannot do enough good to offset the evil. No, our sin destroys us. It renders us all guilty before God. And infinitely so because he sees even the thoughts and intents behind the sin. He's exposed to the impurity and the defilement of sin in a way that we just aren't. But Jesus goes and gives his life as a payment, as the only acceptable payment to God for sin. On the cross, when Jesus dies and pays, God's wrath and His justice is satisfied. He never sets His law or His justice aside. No, there is satisfaction for sins in the eyes of God. He accepts it. And here's the thing. Jesus knows. He knows that He's coming to die and to pay for sins, which is why He can confidently pronounce the forgiveness of sins. When he looks at this man being lowered down and he sees into his heart and knows the man's faith and he says, your sins are forgiven. That's a real real pronouncement of forgiveness. When Jesus goes two and a half years from now to go and die on the cross, it's for this man also. He knows him, he sees him, he dies for him. He pays for him, he says, you're forgiven. Now forgiveness of sins comes to those who have repented, have turned from their sins in their hearts. And to those who trust in Jesus Christ as the sole, the sole Savior. Now there's a a popular notion floating around. I think I've spoken to this before, but I want to just reiterate. It's really something that comes to us in the self-help culture. It's this notion of forgiving yourself. I see it all the time. I'm sure you do as well. And it's really meant to be a solution to the problem of unwanted guilt unwanted guilt. And the idea is if you're struggling with guilt over something on your part, you need to forgive yourself and then that that guilt will go away. But let me just remind you here, this is not only unhelpful, it's unbiblical and it's impossible. Let me explain. There are times when you commit a sin, either against God or against someone else, and the guilt is the result of the transgression. Now one of two things can happen. Either you can go and confess that sin and receive forgiveness... Or if you don't confess, you can try to bury the guilt and just pretend like it never happened, sweep it underneath the rug, you know? Now, burying the guilt through forgiving yourself is going to do nothing for you except ruin your conscience and aggravate the offended party. 
If I go drive over my, my wife's flower bed and just pretend like it never happened, what's going to happen? It's going to deaden my conscience for the next time I do it, and it's going to make her really upset versus going and asking for forgiveness. So that's burying it. But if you, if you do confess, you can find real forgiveness that will remove the guilt and give you peace. Again, forgiveness is the removal of sin's burden. Well, what if, and here's the other side of it, what if I have confessed and have been forgiven, but I still feel guilt and shame? Forgiving yourself is still not the answer because you're offering something to yourself that you can't give. In fact, you can no more forgive yourself than the paralytic is able to heal himself. It's the same thing. But if you have been forgiven, and here's where I want to encourage you, if you truly have confessed and you have been forgiven, then the answer is not to keep on forgiving yourself. No, the answer is to walk and live in the forgiveness you've received. See, when we confess our sins to God, and by His promise we receive forgiveness, and then still live under the guilt and the shame, you're you're not trusting that His forgiveness is true. You're not believing and trusting in the promise of God. And people always ask all the time, well, how do I know if He's forgiven me? The Bible tells if you confess your sins... God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. And you might say, well, how do I know if he's forgiven me? Have you confessed? Is it real confession? Is it real repentance? And you say, well, yes, it is real repentance. Not only do I feel terrible about it, I recognize I've sinned against God, and I'm purposed to change it and not do it again. That's real repentance. If you have real repentance, and the Bible says that if you confess, you'll be forgiven, then you are forgiven because of Christ. Again, you cannot disconnect forgiveness and Jesus. The forgiveness comes through the cross. And so, but the problem is we keep on heaping this guilt and shame either because of ourselves or because of Satan. You need to walk in forgiveness. And when you hear that voice, remember that thing you did 20 years ago you felt really bad about? Oh, that was terrible. You say, don't, you, have to, you, can't, you can't go back to that. No, I confess that sin. I was forgiven. Satan, don't bring that back. Self, don't bring that back. That doesn't belong there. We don't live as shamed people once we've been forgiven. Rather, we acknowledge that we are debtors to God's grace, that He's the one who forgives us, and my heart belongs to Him. I'm trusting in Him for the forgiveness. I'm not trusting in my own feelings. You understand what I'm talking about? Not living under unnecessary guilt and shame for things that you already have been forgiven for. The point here is to look to God for forgiveness. To look to God for And when your sins are against other people, humble yourself. Humble yourself and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. But again, ultimately, ultimately, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's correct. God forgives sins. Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. Any sin. We don't categorize sins and say, well, this is this and that's that. And okay, God will forgive that, but he's different for this and different for that. No. Any sin, all sin. All sin, God will forgive. And you say, but my sins are really bad. Guess what? Your Savior is greater. Jesus Christ is able to forgive sins. In fact, even friends, if you think that your sins are so great that God can't forgive you, then you don't understand the righteousness of Christ. You don't understand the payment and the sacrifice of His blood on the cross. You don't understand the sinlessness of Christ. And the power of Christ to really atone and pay for sin. And let me tell you, you must. 
You must. You must see. As Romans 5 says, as transgressions increased, grace abounded all the more. How is grace able to abound all the more? Because Christ is able to cover all sins. There is no sin that you can commit that is beyond the forgiveness and the restoration of God. Whatever you've got, friends, whatever you've got, it doesn't matter. Bring it to Christ. Cast your cares, cast your burdens on Christ. And He will bear them and you'll be forgiven again if you confess your sins. God is not only faithful, but He's also just to forgive you and to cleanse you. You can find freedom from sins. How does the crowd respond when they see this paralytic get up and walk? Look at verse 8. When the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. This word awestruck in the Greek also really can be translated amazed, even afraid. They were so flabbergasted, so awestruck. They were terrified in their fear. Ever see something that's so breathtaking you just don't even know how to respond? That's their feeling here. But they, they have this feeling. They're awestruck. They're terrified in their awe. They begin to glorify God. They glorify God for this. And it's interesting because the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus of casting out demons and doing these kinds of signs by the power of demons. But guess what? The natural product of this when people see it is to glorify God. So even that right there, if nothing else, should tell you where this is coming from. They glorify God for such a remarkable, wonderful thing. And why do they glorify God? The text says because He had given authority to forgive sins to men. Now before we go too far with this, I want to just make a couple of quick comments. The point here is that they only saw Jesus as a man at this point. Okay, They didn't know who He was exactly. All they saw is a man walking around, looks like you and me, saying these things that they'd never heard and doing things they'd never seen. and so, But again, they regard him as a man. So the fact that a man could forgive sins was groundbreaking for them. They didn't understand that. And so when they pronounce that, this is that God has given ability to men to do this, they don't know yet that he's the God-man. They don't know that he's different than everybody else. That he alone truly has the authority to forgive sins. Yet it's interesting In John chapter 20, verse 23, Jesus tells the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins are forgiven. How is that possible? If we just spent the last 40 minutes saying that only God can forgive sins, how is it possible for Jesus to tell us that if you forgive someone's sins, they're forgiven? Because we have a gospel of forgiveness. A gospel of forgiveness. And we do so under the authority of Christ. We're we're, we're messengers to other people. We're messengers that we have under the authority of Christ and through His Word, we can tell people with full confidence. I can tell you, not as a pastor, not as a minister, not as anything else, I can tell you as a believer, as a person who, like you, carries this gospel message with me everywhere I go, if you confess your sins to God and if you believe on Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven and you'll, be, have, you'll have life and you'll be saved. Now, you're not pronouncing forgiveness like you have the ability to do so, but you're delivering them the news of the gospel that can save them and the message of God who does forgive. We have a hope for a hopeless world. My friends, as the world grows darker and darker, you have something special 
Not only that you are special because of Christ and because you're made in the image of God, more than that, you, my friends, have something that the world does not understand. And you might think to yourself, yeah, but I'm a new Christian. I don't know this stuff very well yet. You have a Bible, right? You have John 3.16. You have Romans 10.9 and 10. Whatever verses you want to grab onto and use, practice those, memorize those, get familiar with the Gospel, train yourself up in this way. But the more that you've been given, the more that you have to give, right? But we have this message of reconciliation. We have this message of forgiveness. You could go to someone who's, who's racked with guilt and shame over their sins and you can say, let me tell you, I have good news for you. Yes, you've sinned against God. Yes, and it's awful. Yes, you've sinned. I've sinned too, by the way. But you can find forgiveness. You can have life. You can have the removal of the guilt and the burden in Jesus Christ. He can forgive you. He came and died to pay for sins like what we're talking about. If you turn from your sins and trust in Him, He'll save you. That's a real message. That's real hope. My friends, don't hide that message. Don't put that lamp under a basket. If we as Christians, by the way, have been forgiven by God for our many sins, should we not also be willing to forgive others who sin against us? Think about that as you think about your relationships to to people in your own life. If you have been forgiven, if you have received the grace and the kindness of God in forgiveness... And should you not also extend that to those who've sinned against you? The Bible tells us that we should. But keeping in mind, true forgiveness, all forgiveness, finds its origin in Christ. Christ has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful truth? I love it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given authority to Christ to forgive sins. And Lord, we read the Gospels. These are not just literary accounts for our perusal, Lord. This is the living Word that you've given us. And we see Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we see Him walking around and talking to people and demonstrating His love for them and His mercy and His kindness. And while He hates the sin and and rebukes those who are in the sin, when they turn, when they repent, He accepts them and forgives them and loves them and calls them Son. What a remarkable thing, Lord. And God, as we study the Scriptures, as we study the Gospels, I pray that You would also uh, do this work of divine surgery in our own hearts to convict us of our sin and our transgression even for those who belong to you already, that you would continue to refine us, to chasten us, and to conform us into the image of Christ. In the end, our goal, Father, is to be like your Son in all things. And so I pray that you would help your church to do this. Thank you, Lord, for this story, for this account. I thank you for this man and his friends, and I thank you mostly for the Lord Jesus Christ who has granted this to him and to all us who belong to you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.